Welcome to the Unqualified Scholar Podcast. Whenever and wherever you are, I hope you're having a blessed day. I hope things are going great for you. This is, uh, I like big books. And this is sort of in preparation. We have, a, as a church, where we have a trip to the Bible Museum coming up. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. I like the Bible Museum. I like going to museums. Um, yes, I am a nerd, and I'm okay with it. <clears throat> um, but what we're talking about here in this series is really... How did we get the Bible that we have today? You know, we didn't have uh, the ESV study Bible or the NIV study Bible. It didn't just drop out of heaven into our laps. It came through a process of inspiration, um, uh, identification, as far as like which books belong in the Bible, and then finally transmission where the Bible was hand copied through centuries to get to us. And it, it's, it's been a remarkable, it is a remarkable journey for a remarkable book and, and well worth our time and attention. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and get things kicked off here with I Like Big Books. You know, this, the central point of all of this <clears throat> is to help you have confidence that you have a reliable copy of God's message to you that's been received from Him transmitted through centuries and translated into English in a way that you can use it carefully to understand who God is, who his son Jesus is, and how to live well and correctly in the world he created. And so as we think about the big book that we're thinking about, remember that this came through a process that God was supervising and watching over everything that happened so that you and I could enjoy and profit from reading and studying the Bible. Well, one of the things that we start off with, we start off with the question, what is the Bible? And so this is an important question for all of us. I mean, even if you're not a Christian or not, you know, interested in becoming a Bible scholar or anything like that, you should at least take some time to understand the world's greatest bestseller. I mean, it, it only seems reasonable. More Bibles have been sold than any other book, and that needs an explanation. So one of the things, what is the Bible? When we think about this question, we can say, well, what does the Bible say about itself? Well, the Bible says this in the book of 2 Timothy. Now, 2 Timothy is a, a letter written from a man whose name is Paul. Paul is formerly a Jewish rabbi. He grew up uh, as a Jew. He learned uh, Jewish scholarship through all of his life. And then he became a Christian uh, because of a direct involvement with Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul would have some deep background in the things of Judaism and an understanding of the Bible from that perspective. And so he says this to his protege, Timothy, who is um, planting churches and handling church problems. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, Paul used this word breathed out. It's a word that he created um, to sort of identify the process by which God moved in the human author to bring his exact words into 
uh, into being in the page of Scripture. So what we have is that God wanted to say exactly what was said in the original copies of Scripture. So as the authors, whether it was Moses or one of the prophets, Isaiah, or the psalmist, David, these things were breathed out. They come from God through the human author. And so another, in another place, Paul says to a different church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The Bible describes itself as the message sent from God, breathed out from him into human messengers who wrote down exactly what God intended. That's what the Bible says about itself. But also, as we think about the history of the Bible, it hasn't been questioned for a long time that this was the Word of God. Norman Geisler, in his general introduction to the Bible, says this, Throughout its broad and diverse ranks, Christians of all major persuasions prior to World War I officially adhered to the belief that the Scriptures are the divinely inspired, authoritative, infallible, and inerrant Word of God. And so there are opinions in the modern world that, you know, in the modern world we question everything. But if you go back into relatively recent history, it, the general belief among educated people and uneducated people alike is that the Bible is the Word of God. So if you go back into the history of the church, you know, you, you, we've heard from Paul uh, in the first century. You go to Augustine in the 400s and you ask him what the Bible is and he'll tell you it is the Word of God breathed out for you. If you go to the 600s and you talk to Gregory the Great, Gregory the Great would say that the Bible is the Word of God breathed out for you. If you go and talk to people who are in the Crusades, they believe that the Bible is the Word of God. The Reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther in the 1500s, all these people believed that the Bible is the Word of God, breathed out, inspired, so that we could have a word from God and understand what God wants us to understand. Now, these people weren't perfect, not by any means. But when you think about how the Bible was translated into English, for some time it was illegal for the Bible to be translated into the language that you and I speak for fear that the common man would be able to understand the scriptures. And if the common people understand the scriptures, who knows what kind of radical ideas they might have. Well, century after century, men and women have looked at the Bible and seen that it is the Word of God. We are, I am, a, a United Brethren pastor, and in our documents we have something called a discipline. The discipline sort of sets forth the standards for doctrine and for community life, and it says this about the Bible. We believe that the Holy Bible, Old and New Testaments, is the Word of God, that it contains the only true way to our salvation, that every true Christian is bound to acknowledge and receive it with the influence of the Spirit of God as the only rule and guide, and that without faith in Jesus Christ, true repentance, forgiveness of sins, and following after Christ, no one can be a true Christian. The Bible itself claims divine inspiration. History, at least until the last hundred years or so, 
acknowledges that the Bible is the Word of God and Christians in the modern world who confess the, the historical Christian faith agree that the Bible is the Word of God. When I, I recently bought a car, um, <clears throat> 2000, I can't remember when, <clears throat> it was a 2009 Ford Fusion and it happened to be sold first in Canada and they re-imported it to the United States and I bought it, felt like I got a good deal and I, I turned the car on and it was all shiny and new to me, but it spoke French. What I mean is that the display was in French, the Sirius satellite radio, when I turned it on, it said blah, blah, blah in French, and I don't know any French. So I opened up the glove compartment because what I needed was the owner's manual. Because the owner's manual is the document that's going to tell me which buttons I have to push to get my car to speak correctly. Well, the owner's manual was also in French. And so I was frustrated. Thankfully, I live in a time where there's the Google. And so I used the Google and, and was able to get my car to speak correctly, to speak in English. The owner's manual is supposed to be a reliable guide of how to operate the car. And it was. I just couldn't understand it. In a similar way, the Bible is a reliable guide to life and a relationship with God. And we have to be able to read it and understand it. What is the Bible to you? Is it a storybook, a book of ancient legends? Is it an owner's manual, a crystal ball to predict the future, a rule book? Maybe the easy thing is to believe that God has spoken to us in his word. And even though it's challenging to understand, we need to be actively involved in reading and studying to understand his message to us. The Bible is the word of God. And so, how did we get the Bible we now have? The Bible is divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are 66 books, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New. It's written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek across hundreds of years by different authors who were guided by the Holy Spirit of God. This is called inspiration. This kind of inspiration doesn't happen when I go into my office and I think, oh, I know, I'll create a silly song and I'll put it on Facebook Reels or whatever. That's not the kind of inspiration we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of inspiration where God moves the human author to write down what God intends. Well, we believe that God cooperatively wrote the books of the Bible with the human author. The different books show the different styles of the human author, but it presents the absolute intended words of the divine author. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that Moses didn't have some bad goat cheeseburger and dream up the book of Leviticus out of nothing? Well, there is a process, and it involves the community of faithful people uh, understanding that something has come from God. Now, I'll get into the process here in a second. The works of the Bible have to be recognized as coming from God. Now, a book of the Bible is in the Bible because it's inspired. But when we unpack and understand the process of inspiration, uh, we understand that it's not a simple deal. It's not that somebody shows up and says, hey, I've got some new Bible stuff for you. It's not that at all. It has to be vetted and carefully considered by a community of people who are pretty skeptical about new things. I mean, have you been to church, right? So 
how is it how that is known to be true is the process of human recognition so inspiration of a book of the bible is recognized by people now men discovered what god determined by looking for the earmarks of inspiration it was asked whether the book one was written by a man of god okay so the first criteria is the person who is writing this book that's and this is historical there's no new books of the bible being written in the history of inspiration, was the book written by a man of God? So we consider the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were written by a man named Moses, who is widely acknowledged to be a man of God. But that's not the only thing that is required to recognize inspiration. Is this man confirmed by an act of God? Well, yes, Moses, if you look back through the Pentateuch and the Old Testament, you'll find that Moses was widely regarded to be a man of God who did the acts of God. He stood up to Pharaoh in, in Exodus. So there we have it. There are two, at least two things about the person. Did he tell the truth about God, man, and so forth? So when Moses wrote the Pentateuch, it was submitted to the community, and the community was able to say, yes, this is true. Does it come with the power of God? Yes. Was it accepted by the people of God? Yes. And so uh, these five things, was it written by a man of God? Was it confirmed by an act of God? Does it tell the truth about God, man, and so forth? Does it come with the power of God? And is it accepted by the people of God? Those works that were recognized as inspired were then collected, preserved, and passed on by the community of faith. Because once you've decided that something has come to you from God, it is worth holding and uh, cherishing, learning, studying, and passing on to the next generation. And so for hundreds of years, this is what the Bible has been recognized as. Like the individual books of the Bible were recognized as the word from God, and it was preserved, and it was passed on. Now, so the author writes the book, the author's work meets the criteria, the community accepts the book. And there are some books that were recognized and accepted by everyone without question. Uh, Moses' writings, there pretty much isn't a whole lot of controversy there. Other books were questioned. And this is true of Revelation, this is true of the book of James and the New Testament. Both these books have been considered skeptically uh, through the centuries and decided that they belong in the Bible. Many literary works, many works that were written down were rejected by the community for various reasons. Either their their theology was a little off or their um, their metaphors were a little too weird and wonky. Uh, the community has decided that there are many books in the history of book writing that don't belong in the Bible. So the author writes it, the community accepts it, uh, and that's a pretty high bar. The community then recognizes it, collects it, and transmits the book to subsequent generations. So here's the thing to think about. Were these books reliably transmitted by hand copying from one generation to the next? The short answer is yes, but let's go ahead and expand on that just a little bit. Now, whole books are written about the transmission of Scripture. This is the word that's used to describe the process by which something that has been handed down as Scripture from one generation to the next, this is the process of how it gets passed on. Transmission is the word that describes hand copying of the texts of Scripture in the centuries before the printing press was invented. 
Now, it's a little bit different for Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament was written by many different authors between about 1400 and 400 BC. And so the Old Testament was written, uh, so between 3,400 and 2,400 years ago, the Old Testament was written on something called parchment. Parchment is a prepared and stitched together animal skin that makes a long scroll. The people of Israel accepted the works of the Old Testament as the word of God and very carefully preserved it. Whenever a copy of the Old Testament got old or faded or, you know, somebody spilled their coffee on it, they made a letter by letter copy and then they buried the original because they, they were afraid that if you kept a copy that was older, it might get faded, it might get misread, it might get misunderstood by the community. And that for them was, we could not have that. And so once you've made a letter by letter copy, the copy is better than the original because the copy is certain to not have any faded letters or any ink stains or blots or anything that might result in a misreading of the text. And so whenever, now, until recently... The only oldest copy of the Old Testament was a text from around 1000 AD, hundreds and hundreds of years after it was written. This is called the Masoretic Text. Well, it must be chock full of errors, right? Because there's so much time that's gone on that in this hand copying, certainly errors have crept in. Now, there are no errors in the original. That's what Christians believe. There are no errors in the original. But in the copies, there could be errors. And one of the things that biblical studies can do is it can track errors in texts. So even though the most recent copy of that, um, of that Old Testament is from about 1000 AD, there are numerous translations that are before that. So we may not have a Hebrew text to compare it. Actually, we, we do. Hang on. We're coming up on the Dead Sea Scrolls. But there are lots of translations that you can compare how the translation says something and how the Hebrew text says something, and you can make an educated judgment about which reading is correct. Well, there are two groups of scholars, I won't give you their names, but uh, in the transmission history of, of the Bible, from about 100 to 500 AD, there was a group who uh, got a little bit crazy about the transmission of the scriptures. So they wanted to make sure that they went letter by letter, but they also got even more crazy about it. Here are some rules that they followed. They, the, trans, the, the transcribers, the transmitters, prescribed the skins to be used, so certain skins from certain animals, the number of lines on the skin, the kind and color of ink to be used, and the distance between letters, either a hair or a thread. The scribe could not copy from memory, but must transcribe the text letter by letter, sitting in full Jewish dress. He must not begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink, and should a king address him while writing that name, he must take no notice of him. So they had rules that they had to follow. And if, if you look at some of the old texts that are hand copied, you can actually see where the, the lines were prescribed and the distances were prescribed and the letters were very carefully written one by one with just enough space between them. 
between about 500 and 1100, a different group of scholars equally committed to the transmission of the text. They numbered the verses, the words, and the letters of every book. They calculated the middle word and the middle letter of each. They enumerated verses which contained all the letters of the alphabet or a certain number of them and so on. And so these guys, when they sat down to write, they knew the middle word. And if it was wrong, they started over. Can you even imagine? Like sit down and copy a recipe from your grandma and go letter by letter, not word by word. And then compare your copy with the original, letter by letter. Find the middle word and then make sure that it's the same. And if it's not the same, copy the, re the recipe again. Pretty simple exercise, right? After maybe the third or fourth try, you're going to make sure that you get it right. And these people did this as their profession. The text they produced from about 1000 AD is more recent than our New Testament. So we're talking about Old Testament transmission. Up until recently, we, had, we didn't have anything older than that text. How do we check it? Well, we check it using fragmentary copies. We check it using translations. We look for things called variant readings. We look for anything that might be an error so that we can count it, calculate it, and make an educated decision about it. Okay, so the next, like the big thing that happened in biblical studies in the last century, at least one of them, is something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because what the Dead Sea Scrolls did is they backed up this idea of transmission by a thousand years. And so in the 1940s, uh, a Bedouin shepherd is looking for sheep. And this is actually, a, you can actually find pictures of the cave where this happened. This Bedouin shepherd is looking for a lost sheep. He threw a rock into a cave and he heard pottery break. When he went into the cave, he discovered scrolls packed into pottery jars. Now remember, when a text got old and it was in danger of being misread, or you know when there was a threat to the community from the many wars that came in, they would hide these sacred writings so that they couldn't be destroyed, or to make sure that they had accurate copies. And what they discovered in this cave are manuscripts that dated from about 125 BC. So the, the most recent text we had was from about a thousand. Now we go back a thousand years and we have texts that we can compare with the more recent ones. And you know what they found? Let me tell you. These Dead Sea Scrolls were restored and it's been discovered that many of these texts are Old Testament texts. It's been studied to death, compared letter by letter, and the result is that the text from before the time of Christ is 95% identical to the text from 1008 AD. The 5% difference. Okay, so what this is saying is that over a thousand years of hand copying, there's about a 5% error rate. But remember, they count every error as an error. So if you make a spelling mistake, and that gets repeated in several different copies, each one of those counts. And so the 5% difference consists mostly of spelling errors and obvious slips of the pen. Well, 
Here's a specific comparison. The Isaiah scroll, 1Q Isaiah A, from Qumran, led the Revised Standard Version translators to make only 13 changes from the Masoretic text. Okay, so what they're saying is that the Masoretic text is the 1000 text. The, dead, the Isaiah scroll from Qumran, that's the one that they're comparing. A thousand years of handwritten manuscript copies, they go back a thousand years, and they're going to make changes based on that older text. Eight of these were known from ancient versions. So of the 13 changes they made, they knew about eight of them. They just weren't sure enough to make the change. And few of them were significant. More specifically, okay, so what they're saying is as you compare the Isaiah that we had to the ancient scroll, the more ancient scroll, there wasn't any need to make any real change. More specifically, of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, only 17 letters differ from the Masoretic text. There's only a 17-letter difference over a thousand years of hand copying of these 166 words. Ten letters are a matter of spelling. Four are stylistic changes, and three others, three letters, compose the word for light, added in verse 11, which does not affect the meaning greatly. What that tells you is that over a thousand years of hand copying, manuscript transmission, there isn't enough change to make many changes at all. And none of them are theological. None. I listened to a lecture. It was a 90-minute lecture by a text critic, and he talked through all of these different things. And, and at the end of it, he said, you know what we've discovered after all of this research and all of this study? is that over that thousand years of hand-copied manuscript transmission, God preserved his word. Isn't that amazing? That just to me is evidence that this that we hold in our hands today, this scripture that God has given us, not only did he inspire it, not only, but he also preserved it. He inspired it, he preserved it, and so you can have confidence that the Old Testament that you hold in your hand is what God wanted you to have. Amazing. Thanks to a shepherd in a cave. The Isaiah text is amazing, and you have in your hands a good translation from a reliable copy of the Old Testament. Well, the New Testament is a little bit different because the processes that were involved were a little bit different, and yet still the result is that you can trust the New Testament that you hold in your hands. There wasn't a standardized text of the New Testament that was reliably copied like the Old Testament. We know the New Testament is reliable because it exploded onto the literary scene in the first century, and people get, began making copies and copies and copies of the letters that we're so familiar with today. The New Testament was written by several different authors who composed their works before A.D. 100. The works are letters, gospels, uh, histories, and apocalyptic. That's the book of Revelation. All of the originals are lost. We don't have any originals. All we have are handwritten copies. Now, by this time, uh, parchment is still in use, but it's, still, it's very expensive. Much of what we have of the New Testament is on papyrus paper. So they are uh, reeds of the papyrus plant. Um, sort of flattened out, crisscross, and, you know, made smooth, as smooth as they can get it. And then letters are inked onto this papyrus paper. 
The paper was durable and inexpensive, but nowhere near as strong as parchment. Now, the process of recognizing inspiration is still the same. The author writes a book. He's known to be a man of God. It's attested by power. Um, the author's work meets those criteria, and the community accepts the book. There was no smoke-filled room where a bunch of guys got together and decided what the Bible would hold. It, is, it has always been a community process. The Christian community recognized the inspiration of the writings of Paul, John, Luke, and others. They collected, preserved, and spread their works. The earliest lists that we have, they're called canon lists. And so the earliest canon lists that we have are really, which books should you die for? You see, if you, if you have some scrolls or some parchments, which ones should you hold on to at the expense of your life? And that's where the, the scholars got together and they said, look, you might have the shepherd of Hermas. That's not worth dying for. If the Romans come and they want to take your books, give them that one. If you have a copy of the book of Romans, a copy of the gospel of John, hold on to that because that is scripture. That is what God wants us to know and preserve and pass down to, to coming generations. And so we have a lot of copies of the New Testament. And that's where we can compare copy to copy, and we can discover um, what readings may have been changed over time. And so one of the things that we'll look at here is this little book. Now, this little book is called A Textual Commentary on the Greek New Testament. So inside this book, what you'll find is scholarly opinions about different readings, about variant readings in the New Testament. And so one of my favorites is John 5, 4. Because if you look in a modern Bible, if you look in something contemporary, you can look at your NIV or you can look at the ESV or I think even the New King James. What you'll find is at John 5, 4, it says, omit verse. And then this is the grade the scholars have assigned to this opinion. We should omit John 5, 4, and they agree. A is the highest you can get. Now, what they're doing is they're looking at all of these copies. They're looking at the oldest copies. They're looking at translations. They're looking at every piece and shred of evidence they can find to understand what to do with John 5, 4. Verse 4 is a gloss. A gloss is where a scholar looked at the text and said, you know, somebody needs to explain this in here. And so some well-meaning scribe back in history decided that he would explain what it was that was happening at the Pool of Bethesda in John 5.4. Verse 4 is a gloss whose secondary character is clear. Secondary means that it wasn't in the original, that it wasn't supposed to be there. It was added by somebody else later. Is clear from, one, its absence from the earliest and best witnesses. What he's saying here is that they looked at the older, the older copies. The older copies don't have verse 4 in it. And the, this is a list. You can actually look. You can. This is P66, P75, Codex Aleph. You can look up which ones these are. You can look for yourself. The, the true text of the Latin Vulgate, uh, and then two. So all of these, like th these are the, the witnesses, the texts that we have, where John 5.4 isn't there. Number two. The presence of asterisks or obelai to mark the words as spurious in more than 20 Greek witnesses. Okay, so what happens is you'll have a scribe whose job it is to, to 
transmit, you know, to copy the Bible. And so he's copying John and he's going to leave verse four in there because scribes are conditioned not to take anything out. He's going to leave verse four in there, but he's going to, in the margins, he's going to make a little note. He's going to make a little asterisk. I mean, he's going to do this. Hey, I know five, four doesn't belong here, but I'm leaving it in because I'm not going to take anything out. Uh, number three, the presence of non-Johannine words or expressions. Um, so basically, uh, and then four, the rather wide diversity of variant forms in which the verse was transmitted. So as you look at different uh, ancient copies, this verse seems to be a bit of a mess. It seems to not belong. And so all of this put together, all these scholars decided with a high level of confidence that the verse should be omitted. And so your modern translation committees will follow that advice and you'll find that John 5.4 isn't in a modern Bible. Now, if you get an old King Jimmy, you'll find verse 5.4, maybe even a new one. I don't, I'd have to look. Okay, does that make sense? I hope so. So the, the transmission of the New Testament is a little bit different because we have all these copies written on papyrus paper and we can compare these copies and decide whether certain verses belong in certain places or not. So the guys that do this are called textual critics. Textual critics, um, you know, they look at all the different things that happen in the text and we have a lot of copies of the New Testament. Most of the oldest ones are partial but it gives us this huge sample to compare copying errors called variant readings and decide which variant is most likely the original. Textual critics decide which reading is best. They generally prefer the older text. They generally prefer the more difficult reading because a scribe is more likely to try and help you out by, by making it smoother. They prefer the shorter reading uh, before they consider things like the context. You know, you know what they don't consider? Theology. They don't really look at theology at all. They're looking at the text because they want the text to drive theology, not the other way around. And so as these texts were copied, the older readings were closer to the original. Uh, the same thing is true of the more difficult or the shorter reading. The copyist is more likely to smooth things out. And every variant reading is recorded and, and checked and annotated so that scholars can check the textual critics work and look for themselves. Everybody is watching this whole process very, very closely. When you calculate the number of variant readings in all of the New Testament texts, we have all the New Testament texts that we have available, all these copies, all these ancient fragments. What you'll find is that there are something like 200,000 variants. But here again, that means that if a spelling error occurs in 3,000 copies of the same place, it counts as 3,000 errors. When you count the number of places where there's an error, you come up with about 10,000 places where there is a variant reading. But again, when textual critics analyze those variant readings, most of them are obvious spelling errors and slips of the pen. When you listen in to textual critics talking about how close the New Testament is to the original, they'll give you a percentage like 98 to 99.99% of the time uh, we have the original, or we have as close to the original as possible. And so these guys are the guys who have checked. They have looked. When you compare the New Testament, 
when you compare all these different copies, what you find is that you have in your hands today, in your English Bible, you have what God wanted you to have. When you compare the New Testament to other ancient documents, that's where the difference really stands out. Compare the New Testament to Homer's Iliad. Okay, so the Iliad is uh, from about 850 BC. There are 643 copies of it, and it is the er the earliest complete copy is from the 900s AD. So 643 copies of the Iliad, 15,600 lines, 764 questionable lines, a 5% textual corruption. Now that's pretty good, you might say. You might think, okay, 5% textual corruption. Okay, we can, we can deal with that. We can have 95% of the Iliad and still understand the Iliad, right? Let's think about the New Testament. 643 copies of the Iliad, more than 5,000 copies of the New Testament, and we're finding more all the time. About 20,000 lines, about 40 questionable lines. So 764 for the Iliad, 40 for the New Testament. And that results in less than half of a percent textual corruption. And it's a lot of things like spelling errors. Obvious slips of the pen. Obvious hearing errors as scribes in the New Testament era were not doing letter by letter. They were kind of going word by word. And you might hear a word a little bit differently. Norman Geisler in his work on uh, the, the Bible, uh, it's a general introduction to the Bible, says this, It is significant that the Bible not only has been preserved in the largest number of manuscripts of any book in the ancient world, but that it also contains fewer errors in transmission. Actually, the variant readings which significantly affect the sense of a passage are less than 10% of the New Testament, and none of these affect any basic doctrine of the Christian faith. Frederick Kenyon, who studied the Bible for his whole life, studied the ancient texts for his entire career, said the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it, he holds in it the true word of God, handed down without essential loss from generation to generation through the centuries. You have the Bible. Now, there are people in the world who will tell you that it's full of errors, that's simply not true. The academics, the textual critics, the, the Bible teachers and pastors who are watching what they do have looked at this process of textual criticism and they have decided that there's less than half of a percent difference between the original manuscripts inspired by God and the copies that we have by which we have produced English translations. One of the ways that you, if you're a lay person and you're listening to this, one of the ways that you can read for yourself is take a, 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 a more word-for-word -word translation, King James, New American Standard, and compare it to a thought-by-thought -thought translation like the NIV. And look for yourself and read for yourself because you've been given the gift. You stand on the shoulders of giants. This is the Word of God. It's been given to you, and it is our shame that we don't read it and know it and study it like we should. Hey, wherever and whenever you are, I hope you'll take some time today to pick up your Bible and read. God bless you and have a great day.